0: Welcome to Adult Sunday School. I believe it was Ted who taught uh, Acts 19. Am I remembering that correctly? It's been a few weeks, hasn't it, guys? Okay. So in Acts 19, if you remember, Paul was in Ephesus, and most scholars believe that he was there two and a half, three years. That's a long time to plant a church. Um, It's a long time to revisit a church and to disciple. Um, But he was there two and a half, three years, and we know that because the text tells us that, as well as most scholars would agree with that. If you remember, the closing of Acts 19 ends with Paul calling out um, a a group of people, uh, namely the silversmith who was making idols out of the goddess Artemis. And he caused an uproar, it caused a disturbance, and uh, if you remember, Paul has already been stoned, right? So he really avoided something like that happening again. So Acts 20 picks up at the end of this riot, as Luke is continuing to write about the, the, the journey of Paul in this particular journey things to remember as we're going into Acts 20 is that this is Paul's third missionary journey this is his third missionary journey and his third missionary journey begins at the middle of Acts, Acts chapter 18 where he spent some time in Antioch he went through Galatia, Phygeria, he went to the port of Ephesus and he remained there again for three years Um, He's going through Macedonia, Achaia, and the whole purpose of him going and revisiting these places, and we're going to talk more about this in just a second, is he's strengthening the believers. And he is resolute, just as our Lord Jesus Christ was resolute to go to the cross, You could say that Paul was resolute in going to Jerusalem, and there's a reason why he was in a hurry to go to Jerusalem, and we're we're going to talk about that in just a moment as well. So... Paul is going to Jerusalem and we know that because in Acts 19.21, you can look there if you want to, we're told that Paul was resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and uh, Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I had been there, I must also see Rome. Acts 20.16 mentions he was hastening to be at Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost. So Paul is in a hurry he's in a hurry to get back to Jerusalem to be there for Pentecost. So despite setbacks and there's been many setbacks in Acts after Paul was converted, there were disturbances. like I said a minute ago he was stoned. One thing is for sure he is continuing to build his church. God is continuing to build his church. And we're going to see, uh, look with me in Acts 19, just for instance. Acts 19, 20 says, So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. I love that Luke uses the word prevail. If you look that up, not only does it denote that whatever a person is doing was successful, but they were victorious over any adversaries. So because of the Lord that he was working mightily, his word was prevailing, it was successful, it was victorious. And it hearkens back to what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 55, 11, if you remember, so shall the word that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish everything that I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So, God's word is prevailing mightily. Like I said, this is Paul's third missionary journey. And he is uh, going over and traveling over a lot of the same ground that he covered in his second journey. Why would you think that is? Why would Paul traverse over the same ground that he went as his second journey? What's the purpose, do you think? Check on and encourage. Absolutely. So I said a minute ago that he was strengthening the believers. Ted is right. He is checking on. He is discipling. And this was, this is point one. This is Paul's modus operandi. I remember I was in the police academy, and this is probably one of the first words that I learned was the modus operandi, Latin for the mode of operation. This is what Paul did. Paul's regular practice was to, revisit the churches that he had founded and if he couldn't revisit the churches that he had founded he would keep in touch through a colleague there would be some correspondence but his missional practice clearly included not only church planting but intentional follow-up ted said that he checked on them, he revisited them. and the reason bless you the reason there was this initial follow-up was because he wanted to ensure the ongoing spiritual health, revitalization, and advancement for the churches. That's going to be a blank there for you. First one was to revisit the churches he had founded. The second blank is to ensure the ongoing spiritual health, revitalization, and advancement of the churches. Acts 15, 36 says this, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord to see how they are. This was Paul's modus operandi. This is what he did. This is what the Lord called him to. Not only to plant churches, but to revisit, to strengthen, to check their spiritual pulse. So, Point two, why did Paul go through Macedonia? What's the big deal about Macedonia? He not only mentions it, um, he not only visits there once, but twice. Um, But we know about Macedonia because of the Macedonia call. And I forget who taught on Acts 16. It wasn't that long ago. But in Acts 16.9, you can turn there if you want. Luke says this, in a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So the reason he's going to Macedonia is because he felt like the Lord is calling him there, right? Uh, This dream that Paul received was no coincidence. And it led Paul to Macedonia, where he planted not one church, but several churches. And we'll talk more about those churches in just a little bit. So look with me in Acts 20. I'm going to read the first few verses there. After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. So when he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation... He came to Greece. And there he spent three months when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria. He decided to return again, those are my words, through Macedonia. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, Aristarchus and Secondus from Thessalonians, Gaius from Derby, Timothy. And Tychicus, that sounds good. And Trophimus of Asia. So who are these traveling companions with Paul? Okay, to me, it's very interesting that Paul would list these traveling companions, but he never tells us much about who they are or why they're even with them. And here's the prevalent opinion amongst, amongst most scholars. The reason that they are with Paul at this point. And the reason that they are mentioned is because they're taking a collection for the poor from their churches to the mother church in Jerusalem. And they're doing this as a thank you for sending the gospel to the Gentiles. So these men are accompanying Paul, right? And they're from these Macedonian churches. And the reason they're doing this is they are taking a collection for the poor to the mother church in Jerusalem. And these seven delegates went ahead, traveled by ship from Corinth to Troas. Paul did not go by boat, he didn't go by ship, but he went by foot. And he traveled to Philippi, and perhaps this is where Luke was. Okay? Look with me in verse look, look with me in verse 6. And you're going to notice a little change there. I'm going to read verse five just to to help uh, point this out. But these had gone ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of the unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days. And there we stayed seven days. So notice that beginning in verse six, What little bitty word has Luke added to this? I kind of emphasize it a little bit. We, right? So it's believed that Luke was already in Philippi, and this is where Luke joins with Paul, and they team up. So at this point, the seven delegates move on ahead by ship. Luke and Paul instead travel by foot. And again, it was mentioned a second ago about this, this gift, this donation, this offering. Um, this is what we're going to be talking about. And this offering is called the Jerusalem Donation. That's point three. With some more blinks for you guys. Yay. So the Jerusalem Donation, what is it? Well, the Jerusalem Donation was the Apostle's Paul Apostle Paul's largest charity drive, it was the Apostle Paul's largest charity drive. And although he wasn't the main he wasn't the main proponent, it was progressed out of Christian love, solidarity, love for the Gentile and Jewish believers. So Paul didn't start it. It was start out of genuine Christian love and solidarity. For the Gentile and Jewish believers. And this is what Paul was taking along with him. This is why he was visiting these churches in Macedonia. So why it happened? Why did this Jerusalem donation even happen? Well, In Jesus' own words in Matthew 24, listen to me as I read this, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Even so, whenever you see these things, you know that the end is near. It is right at the door. So what's interesting is Jesus prophesied about a coming famine. Where? Well, it was going to hit this entire area. Agabus in Acts uh, Acts eleven twenty-eight. Turn with me there if you'd like to. He mentions the same thing. Acts eleven twenty-eight. One of them, this is an Antioch, one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place during the reign of Claudius. So we have Jesus not only prophesying about a great famine, we have Agabus also prophesying about this great famine that would happen all over the world. So Acts states, immediately upon hearing... This prophetic message by Agabus, the Christians of Antioch began to collect. I believe it's a little bit further after Acts eleven twenty eight. 28. Look with me in verse 29. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in the charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So what we have here is the Christians of Antioch, led by the Apostle Paul and his peer Barnabas, responded immediately by collecting and compiling funds for these churches in anticipation of the coming famine. The Jerusalem church, So if it's happening all over the world, why the Jerusalem church? Well, I feel that's because they were hit the hardest. Okay, we can probably go back and there's probably some record during the reign of Claudius where we can actually read a little bit more about how devastating this famine was. To me, it's because Jerusalem was hit the hardest, the area of Judea. They were hit the hardest with this famine. So last point there. For what it is, what why it happened, who did it involve? Well, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And we can read more about that. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If I could have someone read for me hmm. the first five verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the first five verses. Thank you, Ronnie. So we have Luke, I'm sorry, we have Paul here speaking about this great generosity that happened from the churches in Macedonia. Now, what prompts people to give out of their abundance? What prompts people, believers, to give out of their abundance? I think because we're called to do so. Okay. The Lord prompts you, Holy Spirit prompts you to, uh, to give. I love that. Anybody else? We're commanded to. Can you be more specific, Ted? I'll take that. Tim. Gratitude. So people are giving out of their abundance or even their lack because of gratitude. What, what would someone have, grat- what would a Christian have gratitude for? A lot. <laughs> uh, being uh, inducted into the family of God against uh, the will or desire and being saved through it. Amen. Right? Because of what Christ has done for us, because of out of the many blessings that he has bestowed upon us, and because we're commanded, we give. Okay? What's interesting about it, Ted? I'm going to say, but also, as Christians, we understand what we have. Is it anything that we've we, got God's provided that for Amen. us That's to right. funnel it back to people who need it? Right. And, and, you know, that keeps us from boasting. He owns everything that the cattle on a thousand hills. We're just stewards of it. Yeah, he says, what have you got that wasn't given to you by God? That's right. Amen. It's not our That's good, Ted. I want to note something about these churches in Macedonia. Um, They didn't necessarily give out of their abundance. Um, If if I can list even a few characteristics from these churches, I'm not sure if I have that place for you. I doubt it. Um, But look with me in verse 2. Then in a great ordeal of affliction, this is 2 Corinthians 8 still. So who were the churches of Macedonia? Well, there were churches who had experienced a great deal of affliction, and yet they still gave. <clears throat> Not only that, but they um, they had an abundance of joy, even though their deep Poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. So not only were they greatly afflicted, but these guys were destitute. Deep poverty. In fact, one uh, article I I read once um, mentioned that this word of deep poverty, there is a word um, of, of the submarines, a little like little submarines that aren't, that are man-controlled but are not occupied by man, that go down like to the deepest parts of the ocean to inspect and kind of look around, that's where that de- word derives from. Like they were extremely, extremely destitute and poor. So they were afflicted. They were extremely poor. But yet, they gave of their own accord. And... I can just imagine Paul there. Paul's like, guys, are you sure? Like this, this, this is what you've gone through. You, you don't, you don't have to give right. And and, and they'll understand Jerusalem will understand. I will let them know about the afflictions that you have received that weren't by accident, but that you're going through and you're even stewarding those afflictions. Well, but what does it say there? begged us with much urging for the favor of participation in the supports of the saints. They wouldn't let Paul say no. No, we're going to give anyways. And they gave out of their, and they would still say, we didn't give out of our lack. We gave out of our abundance. It may look like we're giving out of our lack because we're extremely afflicted and we're extremely poor. But I love how they begged Paul anyways. No, we're going to, we're going to give anyways. We want to be a part of this. We want to support our brothers and our sisters who are suffering also in Judea and Jerusalem. And um, that's a beautiful thing, guys. It's a beautiful thing whenever the family of God, whether they have the means or they don't, they give out of their abundance, they give out of their lack to support the ministry. And we're so thankful that GCC that this happens. We have gracious gracious givers who give out of their abundance, who give out of their lack to help other families here and to support the ongoing ministries of GCC. We are are extremely thankful for you guys. So point four. I've really thought with, with this subsection about Eutychus, a lot of pastors, and I think I've heard it before, this is what happens whenever you fall asleep while well, the father's preaching, right? Yeah. Parents, I don't my, my kids maybe can remember well, but I've never said if you fall asleep during the sermon, you're going to be like Eutychus. You better watch out. Lord's going to, you know, he's going to take you out. No, I've never said that. Have I? I don't think I did. Good. <laughs> but going back to Acts 20, we have this interesting section. About a young man named Eutychus. And it's it's very interesting about Eutychus because Eutychus is an amazing miracle that the Lord works through Paul. But I really, I, I don't want to stay there too long. So, in fact... Uh, If I could have somebody read um, Acts 20, 7 through 12, we'll start with that, and then uh, I believe I have some questions for you there, and some more blanks. Thank you, Rodney. Awesome. Thank you, sir. So we have Paul who is preaching. Everything is sliding down on me. We have Paul who is preaching a very short message. Just kidding. It's not short. Okay. He starts in the early evening hours and he continues to midnight. Okay. Um, I mean, how many of y'all have been to any kind of, well, we, we have those of us who've been like T4G, right? R- raise your hand if you've been like to a T4G or, or any other kind of, of conference where there's a lot of preaching. I mean, there's some of those times, most times, right? You're hearing some really good preaching and you are so enthralled. And then, you know, whenever it's over, you're like, man, are you, are you kidding? Would, it seems like it's been like five minutes. Keep going, right? I'm sure that's how we all feel i know that i do whenever pastor joel or andrew preaches as well i keep going pastor who cares about those meatloafs that are burning right it's okay but this is how these people must have felt listening to paul right paul speaking about everything that's going on in ephesus right filling them in well poor eutychus if you can imagine right this is the third story do they have central heating and air back in those days Right by a window, I would have been an unhappy camper, right? I sweat a lot. So, right by a window, this could have been me. Right by a window, Eutychus is propped up, listening to Paul. Paul's going on for hours. I'm sure Eutychus, given him the benefit of the doubt, was probably hanging with Paul on his every word. then all of a sudden, he starts to nod off. Sleep overcomes him, and he falls out of this window. Now, um, again... What I, what I love about this is that the Lord is continuing to use Paul to not only preach truth, but also to perform miracles, okay? But I don't want to get hung there too long, because to me, in the very first verse uh, that, we, that, that Rodney read, 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message till midnight. So on the first day of the week, what day are we talking about? Sunday? Okay. So I have the question there. Why don't we, at least I think I have it there, why don't we Christians observe the Jewish Sabbath as our day of worship? Why do we come together the Lord's Day Domingo on Sunday versus the Jewish Sabbath. What do we do that for? Stephen, did you say something? the The resurrection. Very good. So the reason Stephen just said it is because of the resurrection. So this is what Albert Moeller says about this. I don't think I have this there for you, but You can always fill that in, in that blank there that I left you. Christians shifted their day of worship from the Jewish Sabbath to the Lord's Day to commemorate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what makes Sunday, the Lord's Day, Domingo, and why the New Testament church gathered on this day. So we have one of the very first mentions of The believers there gathering on the first day of the week, on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, and they were breaking bread. Now, some people would say breaking bread where they're just they're they're sharing a meal. I think most New Testament scholars, it's like 50 50. Some believe they were having like a like an actual meal together. And some would say that they're actually partaking of the Lord's Supper. Okay, either way to look at it, I think both are, are unique and special and um, um, very encouraging to see that the believers would gather to not only break bread or to take the Lord's Supper. But Paul preached a sermon. He taught for some time, and unfortunately, Eutychus falls and plummets three stories. Now, Eutychus' story doesn't end there. He was raised from the dead. Paul rushed to him, covered him with his arms, And said, don't be alarmed for his life is in him. And I have some interesting blanks there because for Eutychus, he is one of only seven mentions in scripture, uh, except for the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, of someone raising from the dead. So can anyone think, before we go to the blanks, can anyone think about any in the Old Testament and I'll list, list the verses there in the, in the Old Testament who were raised from the dead. I hear whispering say it loud. Lazarus. Well Lazarus is in, in the news. Widow son. The widow's son, very good. Are you talking about Elisha or yes, Elijah? Very good. So there's two instances in the Old Testament. Whenever Elijah and Elijah each with a young boy, they resurrected and came back from the dead. I'll list those verses there in 1st and 2nd Kings. We're not going to go to those because it's already 10.07. In the New Testament, we have five, that's including Eutychus, of people raising, rising from the dead. We have Jesus whenever he raises Jairus' daughter. That happens in Matthew 9. We have another widow's son from Nain that happened in Luke 7. We have Lazarus that was mentioned. That's very famous. People know about that one. We have Tabitha or Dorcas. That happens in Acts chapter 9. And then we have Eutychus in Acts 20. And these are the only seven that are mentioned of people rising from the dead except the Lord Jesus Christ and with the exception whenever he was killed on the cross that many came back to life and they they came out from the tombs and that must have been a sight right so we have poor Eutychus but not poor again the story doesn't end there he rises from the dead because Paul through the work of the Holy Spirit That could not happen without the Lord's intervention. In this last section, we have Paul's farewell message to the Ephesus elders. So Paul was a man on the mission. Remember, I mentioned a little bit ago he was in a hurry. He wanted to get to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And to save time, Paul made arrangements while in uh, Maltus for the elders to travel to meet him there. He wasn't going to go to Ephesus, but he was going to have the elders from Ephesus meet him there. And the reason, I think the reason that he needed to get to Jerusalem as quickly as possible was because of Pentecost. But also, it was a 60-mile journey through rugged terrain, which is, in those days, is about a four-day trip. So again, that's the reason why he went that direction and had the elders meet him there. Instead of going through Ephesus, it would have taken him longer, and he surely wouldn't have made it but what we have here in Acts 20 18 through 35 is sort of a last will and testament by Paul Um, and for Ephesus he spends the longest time that he's in in, in any place he spends it in Ephesus Um, if you look with me in verses 18 through 21 look over that with me He is basically reconfirming and driving home and confirming the work that he's already done with them there. You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, that I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's no way I'm going to. It's really hard. Let me tell you as a teacher to prepare something and you're like, man, I didn't even cover half. Let me tell you, it happens all the time in my classroom, but I have them the next day. So it's easy to go back and just kind of cover what I didn't cover. I don't get to see you guys tomorrow. So we're going to have to move quickly. So, D.A. Carson, in a book called From the Resurrection to His Return, Living Faithfully in the Last Days, he asked this question. Do you ever say to, to a young Christian, do you want to know what Christianity is like? Watch me. If you never do, you are unbiblical. And the reason he says that is because of the Apostle Paul, many times throughout Scripture, tells his believers, the people he is discipling, to watch me, imitate me. And I mentioned quite a bit, there should be blanks, but 1 Corinthians 4, 15 through 17, that is one. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Jesus Christ through the gospel, I encourage you, or I urge you then to be imitators of me. 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Philippians 3, 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. Philippians 4, 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will, will be with you. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 through 9 is another. As well as 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 11. But this is what Paul does. He is giving them a list of things that he's done to not only help them understand the things that they should be doing, but also to, to give a, a practical way and basically a methodology, if you will, of this is how you imitate me. These are the things that you should do. And John Piper, in one of the sermons that I've heard and listened to, he gives us a few characteristics from these few verses from Paul that's worthy of imitating. We're going to look at these really quick. So again, in the same verses, verses 18 through 21, the first characteristic, that we should imitate is serving the Lord with all humility. Serving the Lord with all humility. This, of course, means it's a a feeling that you have towards God that he has absolute rights over your life. You are in complete submission to him that you acknowledge and understand that he's going to do whatever he pleases. He has absolute authority to tell you what's best for you. It's an attitude that you have, this humility. And this is fine with you. So, characteristics that are worth imitating. Humility being the first one. Secondly, Paul says there will be tears. Paul mentioned in, well, he didn't mention in verse 19 what the cause of the tears were. But he mentions in verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, and with trials. So, in verse 31, look with me in verse 31, moving on just a little bit. He mentions the word tears again. Therefore, be alert. Remembering the night and day of a period for three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. So a characteristic worthy of imitating of Paul's would be tears in the sense that you get involved in people's lives within a local expression of the bride and you share in these struggles and you cry with them. And we, we have lived through that in 2022. And if I know anything about uh, life and uh, what doesn't happen by coincidence by, but by his sovereignty is there will be tears in 2023. And something worth imitating of Paul is sharing in this suffering with people, sharing in their suffering and uh, sharing in tears. Last characteristic that's worthy of imitating is trials. Again, verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility, tears and trials now why does Paul remind the elders about these trials well the answer is they're going to have to go through them too look with me in verse 29 I know that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw the disciples after them. Paul's like, get ready. I've experienced trials. You're going to experience trials as well. And he says what this trial is. Not only is it going to be wolves who come in, but it's going to be wolves who come in who were a part of them. I think that hits a little bit different, not in a good way, as my Gen Z fellow friends would say. This hits worse. Not only are there fierce wolves, false teachers, coming in to cause damage and destruction for their own gain and for their own glory, but it's coming in from among them. Whoops! It's coming in from among them. And to me, if I were an elder knowing that a false teacher was coming in, right, we are supposed to guard the flock, to protect the flock, to be on alert. This is something we'll talk about maybe in just a second, very quickly, of course. But it would hurt more, in my opinion, than if if, if the false teacher came in from among us. Right? So, trials. Paul was telling them to get ready. These fierce wolves are gonna come in, and they're not going to spare the flock. They're gonna draw the disciples away. So, lastly and very quickly, the last portion of Acts 20 features some instruction that Paul gives these elders at Ephesus or of Ephesus. And I think that not only are these wonderful, um, wonderful instruction, but this is something that you can continue to pray for the elders of GCC about. We covet your prayers. He mentions a few things. The first things, there's fierce wolves to be alert. We would ask that you would be in prayer for us as we stay alert and we watch over the flock. Verse 33 mentions that he coveted Paul, coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. He wasn't against receiving these support, but he surrendered that right to guard himself from false charges of being an instrument of sordid gain. So be on alert GCC for that for someone who is uh, coveting gold or silver or apparel for sordid gain. 1 Timothy 3 says that the uh, someone aspiring to the office of elder should not be a lover of money. Or Titus 1 should not be greedy for gain. So Grace Covenant Church, help us be on alert for these things. There are fierce wolves. Help us to watch over the flock. Pray for us as we watch over the flock. Lastly, pray for us as we help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says in verse 35. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. That he himself said it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. So pray for your elders in this regard as well, GCC. And then lastly, Reading these words, I couldn't help but tear up just a little bit as I can imagine the feeling of the Ephesus elders, the feelings of Paul as they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul, repeatedly kissing him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the trip. Oh, that we would long to have that kind of relationship with each other where if someone departed from our midst because maybe they were moving to another church, I know not everyone likes kisses, but we would have this same expression, that there would be this kind of sorrow. And I know that Travis and Christy and their family are back today visiting, and it's so wonderful to see them. But many of us, all of us, whenever someone leaves this local expression, this should be our response. There should be sorrow there. Right, People that we love are leaving. And hopefully it's with good intentions and on good grounds. But sometimes it is on bad. And we definitely see more good than we do see bad. Praise be to God for that. So there are some things to remember. Acts 20, as I finish up, there are some wonderful characteristics that Paul has that are worthy of imitating. Don't fall asleep in church. Okay? And lastly... Be praying for your GCC elders to be alert, to watch over the flock, to help the weak, and to remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you so much again for today. Thank you for the opportunity to teach this morning. Lord, I pray that as we move into corporate worship, Lord, that you would continue to soften our hearts. Lord, that whatever, um, that that the songs that we worship, that we sing this morning, That we would have a genuine expression of worship, Lord, as we seek to glorify you in all that we do. Whether we eat, whether we drink, that we do all things to your honor and to your glory to glorify you. Lord, help us through the preaching of your word to pursue you even more. Lord, we pray that you quicken us this morning and watch over us as we leave this place. We thank you for Christ and his name, we pray. Amen.